Welcome to Neil Oliver Live, the podcast of my show on GB News. You can catch me live every Saturday evening from 7 till 9, but don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show each week. So let's do it. Neil Oliver Live. The online safety bill, years in the drafting and redrafting, has begun its journey through Parliament on the way to being made law. Even after all this time, five years or so of discussions and tweakings, No one seems to like it very much. It is the already unwanted and disowned child of many parents. Plenty of commentators are saying the bill provides yet more tools for stifling free speech, giving our already overmighty overlords more muscles for yet more censorship and control over our everyday lives. The powers that be are fond of buzzwords like misinformation and disinformation, and so to save us from wrongthink and from ourselves, they must always have control of the delete button. When the idea of the online world was conjured into being in the late 1960s, it was supposed to be a free and open place, owned by no one, controlled by no one. It didn't work out that way, of course, because utopia, which means no place, literally doesn't exist, not even online. Given that the original funding for the internet came from the US military, who really just wanted a way to keep their computers up and running and their lines of communication open in the event of a nuclear war, maybe that's not much of a surprise. What could we realistically have expected from a marriage of the military and the hippies at MIT? For a long time, the motto of Facebook was move fast and break stuff. The idea was sold as throwing off the shackles of the old ways and promising a whole new world, a new way of relating to one another working and doing things, a lot of stuff got broken right enough. As it turns out, move fast and break stuff played right into the hands of big corporations with a mind to getting a whole lot bigger. While ordinary people have been invited to think the tech revolution would make their working lives easier and more productive, in the end it just replaced permanently employed people protected by outmoded notions like rights with the gig, zero-hours contract economy where rights are among the rubble of other stuff that got broken. Moving faster and faster from the 1970s onwards, the online culture enabled the tiny, ideologically driven elite that created it to win and take all. The online safety bill now making its way through Parliament feels a whole lot like yet another move from a playbook that's well-worn by now. Make us, the little folk, feel we're in danger from something we can't see, and promised to make us feel safe by assuming yet more control over our lives. The technocrats moved fast and they broke stuff. They broke the national boundaries that stopped them making more money in every part of the world. All the same stuff made for the lowest price at the expense of human beings is increasingly available everywhere so that it's harder and harder even to know where you are. Rather than setting us free, the online world is more and more about uniformity and conformity Much more of this and it won't matter where you are anyway. This is not just about the online safety bill, obviously it's not. That piece of legislation is just another brick in the wall. During the past two years we've been swiftly and efficiently herded to the opening of a whole new era. Most people did what they were told in hopes of feeling safe. And yet let's stop for a minute and look at where we are right now on account of what we were told to do for the best. A cost of living crisis of the sort few alive today have ever seen and no credible ideas about how most might cope with the hits that are coming. 
spiking inflation, energy prices rising in a way that's out of control, restated commitment to carbon net zero, and now a land war in Europe that could go in any direction at the drop of a hat. This is where and what we've been brought to by those that insisted with the full weight and force of the law behind them that they would keep us safe, safe from ourselves. In fact, while a handful of billionaires doubled their wealth, the world is apparently more dangerous than ever before. In recent years, faster and faster every day, the technocrats, corporations and the governments with whom they enjoyed a relationship you might describe as friends with benefits saw to the breaking or the setting aside of the institutions long in the building that really had kept us safe and allowed us freedom to transact with one another in all manner of fruitful ways, education, bodily autonomy, parliament, employment rights, journalism, even the privately owned businesses on the high street. The authorities told the churches to close their doors on their congregations during COVID and most shamefully complied. Even the past itself was vilified and dismissed as corrupt, malign, only to be ashamed of. So much of what had grown over centuries, even millennia, to give us real shelter and protection, meaning in our lives, has been methodically steamrollered flat and replaced with the thinking and morals of so-called and self-proclaimed progressives who looked around at all that had been and merely sneered. Most recently, even the biological difference between men and women has been discarded so that much of the foundation of medical science and also feminism has been dismissed as mere bigotry to declare that there are two sexes and that those sexes matter is hate speak. Across the board, we have replaced discussion and debate with a new game where the only acceptable move is to take turns repeating and so validating the narrow worldview of those progressives who have so efficiently exploited the technological revolution to create a world shaped in their own image and designed to benefit them and them only. But of course, every one of you still awake already knows all of what I've just said anyway. We have this understanding in common, and if nothing else, it has kept us connected and sane in an increasingly insane world that has been deliberately manipulated to make every last one of us feel alone. They shut the pubs, the schools, the churches, and made us stay in our homes so that our only means of communication was via the online world they controlled. Here's the thing, I don't know about you, but I have had about as much doom and gloom as I can take these two years past. From now on, and as much as possible, I propose to look for the light and the fresh air of promise and potential. What I feel more strongly every day is that there is a way to fix this. Or if not to fix it exactly, because some things are beyond fixing, at least to resist its effects and to offer other ways. Ways for those of like mind to turn away from what's being broadcast at us every moment of every day by every means available, and to try something different. Fixing something or if fixing is not possible, starting to build something new, starts with seeing that the thing in question is broken. I don't accept, far less believe, that most people here in Great Britain or anywhere else are natural ideologues fixated on forcing one worldview world on their neighbours. Most of us, I think, simply want to live in a free country, go to a decent job where we're treated with respect and paid enough to raise a family and keep a home and have enough money actual money, mind you, and not the food stamps of central bank digital currency left over for a few adventures on the side. In a brilliant essay about all of this last year, American writer Alana Newhouse raged against the machine made by and of technocrats, ideologues and vast faceless corporations. She said we should dedicate ourselves to breaking free of the machinery that lulls us into a false sense of community 
made of illusory thousands of friends online and the instant gratification of stuff ordered up from far away with clicks of buttons in favour of generating love and attention from three people you actually know instead of hundreds you don't. She pointed out that her fellow Americans, in the face of overweening attempts from progressives to dictate their choices, often voted with their feet, even now. Quote, when HBO removed Gone with the Wind from its on-demand library, it became the number one best-selling movie on Amazon. Meanwhile, endless numbers of Hollywood right-think movies and supposed literary masterworks about oppression are dismal failures for studios and publishing houses that would rather sink into debt than face a social justice firing squad on Twitter, end quote. For those of us that care to do so, now is a time of opportunity, like the time of green shoots after a forest fire. The destruction's already happened in large part, at least. Turn away from those that would tell you there's only one way to live and to think. All that we had and valued is still there, inside the heads of those that care to remember. Our brains are neither digital nor analogue, but something in between. That's the unique human space where we can conceive and so have in the real world once again spaces and institutions made to benefit not governments or corporations or their machines, but us. Now, all of that's my opinion, of course. And I'd like to hear from everyone in the show so you can tell me what you think on gbviews at gbnews.uk and you can tweet me as well at gbnews and if there's time I'll read out some of your comments throughout the show. Now to help me along for the next two hours here on GB News on TV and on digital radio my wonderful panel uh, both of whom are familiar to me now <laughs> friends oh. I like to think Aww. the journalist and broadcaster Ingrid Tarrant and the writer and education specialist, Tom Buick. Good to see you. Lovely to have you both here to discuss and cogitate and digest. Tom, you're very far away from me. Have I done something? No, oh, this is where the producers told me to oh, sit. Oh, oh. <laughs> always happy to do <laughs> OK. Those. Don't mess with the format. Oh, no, I... <laughs> now, I'll, Ingrid, I'll start with you, perhaps. Is the internet online world benign or malign? Is it moving one way or the other? Oh, um, it's, I think it's moving in both directions. I mean, it's malign in the way that um, it is controlling. Um, it's picking up on the buzzwords that is, is wiping out and it's censoring. And therefore, we, we don't have the ability for free, free speech. In other respects, I suppose, where that online thing is, is when you get into the really, like, uh, murky world of the paedophile rings and this, that and the other, because that's all part and parcel of the, the technology. But on the whole, I mean, if we're talking about freedom of speech and our lives, by the way, I thought your monologue was absolutely fantastic. It's a standing ovation piece. Mind you, they all are, really. Um, uh, I think, uh, yes, from, from that point of view, it's, it's very, very dangerous because we are slipping, as you rightly said, we are just going, you know, we've got brains, we are people, we, we're, we're not being allowed, we're allowed to think for ourselves, but we can't explore our thoughts and debate it openly because before we know it, they've shut us down. And we need this, and it's wonderful, isn't it, that we've got this to communicate with the rest of the world where we didn't before. Mm. And they're taking that away from us. They're taking a right. It was a privilege and now it's a right because it's as normal. Tom, what would you say? Are you, are you weary at all 
we all depend upon the internet because that's the way things have, have moved. But do you weary of, of some of its attributes and atmospheres? I'm not weary, Neil. I would describe myself as a rational optimist. I mean, as ever, by the way, yes, a beautifully crafted monologue again that often goes oh, so deep, so. I think, to the core mm. of who we are uh, as, a, as a human species. So it's a pleasure as ever to, to see that and hear that. Um, you know, your question was around, is the internet uh, malign or benign? And I think, as with all these revolutions, and let's not kid ourselves, you know, the World Wide Web is a revolution in our civilization, probably up there with the Gutenberg Press and you know, even the invention of uh, literature itself. Um, so, of course, it brings with it great promise for the, the way in which we communicate with each other. And, and, and I think if you live in a, a liberal democratic society, and let's not forget there are billions of people in the world who don't live in societies like ours, what the internet has brought is pluralism. It's brought the ability for us to challenge those in authority, including, by the way, the mainstream media. Is that still there, though? Or is, that, is, is it becoming apparent that rather than it being owned by no one or by everyone, it is, in all practical respects, mm. owned by a few who get to dictate what's right and what's wrong? But that's the key point, isn't it? Because really, when we talk about the internet, it's just another way of actually describing an online public square, just like the real public square when you go out of this building. And I think the challenge for policymakers, just as we, over time, we've changed laws to regulate behaviour in the real public square, the debate now, and you see it with uh, the online harms bill, is where do you draw this very difficult line between the regulation of harm, for example, harmful but legal speech? Who is deciding that? Is it the owners of the big tech firms based over there in Silicon Valley? Is that not accountable to, to us? Is it, it Nadine Doris sitting there in the Department for Culture? No, we're controlled by them completely. Well, I, I mean, yes, it's a hard... Be. In a democratic society, it's But we're not de democratic around. anymore. It's bureaucratic. It's becomes... It's completely different. We, you know, it's the technocrats, the bureaucrats and everything. I don't think we do have any control over what we are allowed to do and say and spread because they're just controlling it all. There's one buzzword and you're, you're closed mm. down. I mean, yes, there's a fine line between what should go out there, you know, especially with, sort of like, the, you know, the paedophiles, the, the horrible, as I said, the murky, murky world. Mm. But where it comes to um, sharing news, and then, and then you're accused of uh, being conspiracy theorists because actually certain things come out. I mean, we're getting on to the Wikipedia thing there as well. Mm. You know, he was exploring things. That wouldn't be allowed to go out now, much less so. But um, we are, they're controlling us. We've you, got no control. Do you think we, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that it, it was uh, suggested at the beginning that it was going to be a decentralised, open, uncontrolled, in as much as, you know, no one would have the hand on the tiller that directed where the internet was going to go. It was going to be for all of us. And it plainly isn't that at all. And I, I wonder if... Have we, were we just seduced by the convenience of it all? Because there is no denying it makes mm. oh, a certain kind absolutely. of a life very easy indeed. I mean, yeah. You, yeah. you don't need to get out of your bed. Yeah. In you don't order need to, to get function. the encyclopedia and get updates. But, but, then, but there's <laughs> that useful adage that says, if you're not paying for it, you're the product. Mm. And, uh, you know, to what extent do you think the, the internet is, mm. is running on us? Yeah. Well, well, they're in the malign intent behind the internet. Because, again, why it was a revolution? Because we were told in capitalist markets that there was a price for everything and actually what we've discovered with access to the internet and to all forms of information is that it's it's made the marginal cost of information about as close to zero as you can get 
The problem is, there's a whole business model that sits behind that, advertising, digital ads, Facebook, you know, all these big tech companies have to realize in the end the value and capture the value of the infrastructure that they and we have collectively created. So then you're back to the issue again of who, who, who owns the public, uh, online public square? Should we actually be having a democratic debate whether or not these big tech companies should? Should we break these tech companies up? After all, in the first industrial revolution, there was the debate about whether railway owners and people who owned these big factories, whether or not that was in the public and societal interest. That's what gave birth to modern democracy, the trades unions. It was a counterbalance to that unwieldy power. And I wonder whether we're at that stage now in our sort of democratic debate, whether it's time to, you know, to talk about these things. You know, should, should the ownership of the public square actually be put in public trust Mm. For all of us, not I don't just know for a how. Few the, I don't know how that it can because you've got the because you've got them controlling it. So it is the few controlling the masses. And actually, when you think about it as well, everything that you do on there, you'll get all these pop-up advertising and everything. So all the time, they're kind of like getting into your psyche. And I've I actually find it really creepy. I find it insidious. I find it um, actually a little bit scary because it's. Um, it is a form of control. We're using them, but they're using how we're using them. It's kind of use and abuse. I would, I, my contention really is, I, the internet is here. You know, it's mm. like you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's with us and it is, it's an incredibly uh, powerful yeah. uh, presence yeah. which can be exploited either way. But I do wonder whether we ought, before we lose it altogether, to, to seek to preserve <laughs> the old ways of doing things, you know, because yeah, if we don't, if we don't, what far. do you think? Is there any hope of saving the analog world, as I come to think of it? You know, cash in pocket, the shops well, on the high street. That's something else. That is no. We've got to save shops, the cash in the pocket. Shops on the high street. You know, uh, other places to go face to face. You know, being with your GP in in the same room rather yeah. than you know dealt with online. Is it is it too late? And and do you think in fact that we've moved beyond it? Is all of that? Am I just harking back to something that has had its day and is is better replaced by the online offering? I think in this country or any country, you you can still have a little local cafe and and see your doctor face to face mm. if you're lucky and all the rest of it. Um, I think that would be such a lovely way to do it because it's community again. And that's really important. We've gone into isolation. We've lost contact with people. We've, and especially for the kids. Mm -hmm. They're growing up in a very different way to the way that we grew up, with, mm -hmm. with normal values, family, Sunday lunches, you know, before Sunday um, shopping, which I really, mm -hmm. really still object it's, to. It's easy to make a choice between either when you've had both. But as you yes. say, the children have only had one. I'm going, to have to go, I'm going to have to go to a break. Oh. Hold that thought and we'll Sorry. come back. We'll come back and we'll come back to you, Tom, as well. After the break, I'll be joined by the writer and lawyer, Helen Dale, uh, who will give us her unique insight into Ukraine and the background to the current conflict with Russia. Welcome back to Neil Oliver Live. All the while we're sitting here, uh, the suffering of millions of ordinary people continues to unfold in Ukraine. In hopes of understanding more, I've been reading widely about Ukraine past and present. Joining me now, though, is author, commentator and lawyer, and also my friend, Helen Dale. Helen has known the country for decades, has friends there, and has written extensively about the country and the people. Um, 
Helen, it's good to have you. I'm, it's a subject that I'm compelled by at the moment and I'm looking for insight in as many places as possible and I, I, I know that you bring that. As well as non-fiction, you also wrote a novel about Ukraine. What inspired that? Why did you choose Ukraine? <laughs> That's the novel and it is a... This looks nice and new because it's a 20th anniversary edition and even the 20th anniversary edition still came out a few years ago. It was ori originally published in but 1994. Why, why did you go for that place and that history? For I was fiction? one of the... In high school, I was one of the people who... People go down different literary rabbit holes and some kids read science fiction and some kids read everything that, that Tolkien ever wrote. I was a, I went down the Russians rabbit hole. So starting from the age of about 12, I was reading Solzhenitsyn and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and that kind of thing. And then you read all the Russians and then you start branching out into the other parts of Russian language or related language literature. So you start reading Nikolai Gogol and you start reading Taras Shevchenko. And Gogol is a Ukrainian who wrote in Russian. Taras Shevchenko is a Ukrainian who wrote in Ukrainian. And then you, uh, and then you start getting... Um, you. Modern authors like Mikhail Bulgakov, who drew on Ukrainian myth but wrote so in Russian. So there was a so pool. It was, yeah, it was just getting taken, totally taken by a, a, a country and a civilization's literature, basically. And what was it that you wanted to say about Ukraine that you sought to express? Well, in, in the this? hand that signed the paper, I wanted to get across to people that if there was a country on earth that deserved a chance at a better life, it was Ukraine. It has the most tragic history of any modern nation state, bar none. And the phrase I often use, and this is very well documented by eminent scholars over many years, going back to a chap called Robert, Robert Conquest in the 60s and 70s, and more recently, Timothy Snyder. Between the years 1932 and 1945, Ukraine was the most dangerous place on earth. That old... Um, if you, if you watched, grew up watching Doctor Who, I, I grew up watching Doctor Who, if you accept the premise of that, if you wanted to kill a man, you put him in your TARDIS and you take him to Ukraine between 1932 and 1945 and you stand a very good chance of him being dead at the end of that. The, the country's history is so tragic. And to me, that's something that's profoundly necessary to understand. Because a, a lot of us, we, when an event erupts, the war in Ukraine, mm. it's as though the place has appeared on the map of the world through a trap door. Yes. And, and you start making judgments about it, you know, from the get-go. Yes. And without looking back and understanding the past, there's, there is, is there not, little hope of making sense of what has of, happened. Of what has happened now. Because the, the, the big thing, that, the sort of debate that we're all seeing and what we're seeing from Putin and from Russian enablers and then the response from Ukrainians is, first of all, you see from Putin, it's a country full of neo-Nazis or Nazis. He doesn't even bother with the neo-prefix. He just, he just calls them Nazis. And the reason that has resonance for Russians is, and I discuss this in the book and also in the piece of journalism of mine mm -hmm. that you very kindly retweeted that was published on Wednesday for Law and Liberty, an American magazine, is at the beginning of the Second World War, or in 1941, when the Germans invaded Operation Barbarossa, 
there were large numbers of Ukrainian collaborators and they took two forms. They were the standard military collaborators. They were fighting against communism. But they were also overrepresented among perpetrators of the Holocaust. And so Putin is playing on that, but he's also deliberately obscuring that the reason why Ukrainians did those two things, it was very much a case of any port in a storm, because less than 10 years early, earlier, between 1932 and 1933, Stalin deliberately starved the Ukraine uh, in the sense of forced famine. And the way it worked was literally exporting all the food out of the country to get hard currency. Sound familiar, anyone? Mm. Um, and uh, in order to make the money that would give the Soviet Union the appearance of being a developing, rapidly industrialising country. Mm. In 1933, and this is when the famine reached its apogee, or nadir, um, the seed grain was sold. And so in the Duma, the Russian Duma, this is admittedly a few years ago now, even Putin acknowledged that they, the Soviet Union had killed roughly 7 million Ukrainians. People dispute that figure. I've seen 5 million, I've seen 4 million, I've seen 10 million, but it was many millions. That's the main thing. So the suffering wrote by that famine that was yes. forced on them yes. from above made them seek, as you say, any port in a storm. In a storm. And Can I just ask something as well? But wasn't that across the whole of Russia, the famine and the... I mean, wasn't that just the way that it was? There was not just you, they weren't singled out? There Ukraine. was a lot of loss of life across the whole of the Soviet Union. People haven't wrapped the modern people until we've started talking about it now as a result of war in Ukraine, Russia invading Ukraine. People just do not realise what a disastrous, murderous mess Soviet communism was. So there were, there were millions of deaths among other people, but proportionally, the Ukrainians were hit hardest. And it took on an ethnic effect because there was a group, a subgroup of the Ukrainian population who are often described as kulaks in, in the West, who were what we would probably consider to be a model minority. They weren't the model minority that you associate with Chinese or Jews. They weren't traders or bankers. They were farmers, exceptionally skilled at agriculture, and they were viciously targeted, viciously and most of them were wiped out, the ones that weren't finished up in Poland. You've described in your opening uh, remarks that you believe that it's a country that deserves a, a chance like no other. Mm. What kind of country has had it become before the latest conflagration engulfed it? How would you characterise the, the Ukraine up until 2022? One thing I've tried to sort of get across to people, and it was at the time this came out, I remember saying, I think the Russians at some point, when they are strong, the, in 1995, when the controversy over this book happened, Russia was weak. And I said, at some point, Russia will try and invade it again. And people laughed at me because Russia was so weak. Ha ha, communism's overlooked, they're on their uppers. You know, who, who cares? But I did do want to, and I have tried to in more recent journalism when I've been called back to this topic by the invasion, is to get across how much Ukraine has changed. And the easiest and simplest way to get this across to you is I've explained how historically there was collaboration with Hitler. And as you probably know, Volodymyr Zelensky is Jewish. It is more significant for Ukrainians to have elected a Jew president with 73% of the vote 
than it was for Americans to elect a black man, Barack Obama, president in the United States, because the terrible history of Ukraine, both what happened to Ukrainians first and then what happened to Jews in, during the war, is worse than anything that happened to American blacks. People just don't seem to grasp this. It makes the Atlantic slave trade look like a dinky toy. Uh, the, the, the tragedy of this country's history. And when I was seeing Zelensky first becoming popular as an entertainer, that he, he won the equivalent, the Ukrainian equivalent of Strictly or... Um, Dancing with the Stars. Dancing with the Stars or whatever it was. And he, he, uh, he was on their equivalent of Britain's Got Talent and all of that kind of thing. He was a very popular, very successful comedian, and he is very funny. Um, when he was starting to sort of go into politics, I thought this will be very interesting because although it was on a lesser scale, partly because it was a smaller country and because, partly because there were stronger Western norms in the Western part of the country, the bit that used to be part of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, um, they had corruption. They had bought governments. Yushchenko was basically a Moscow-bought government. And then he was overthrown. And whilst Petro Poroshenko was elected fair and square, he didn't clean up the corruption. There was still serious, serious social problems there. And then to see this, this Jewish comedian who does not look like the stereotype, particularly of Western Ukrainians, Nazis ran on that stereotype. They're tall and fair and good looking and that kind of thing, as we've all seen on our television screens now. This person from this background, I thought, if he gets elected, then you know that Ukraine is on that threshold that we associate with... with true democratic modernity, which in this country was achieved in the 19th century. In the piece that you've, that you've mentioned that's in, in, in Law and Liberty, you lay, you lay some blame at successive US administrations mm. that you, you allege that, that Ukraine was ill-served. Yes, it was. There were two things going on. Russia sees Ukraine as part of Russia. And the easiest analogy I can draw, it is like China with Tibet mm. or Taiwan. They see it as always having been part of the country. There are sort of details in there that I can go into, but I, it's not worth covering them here. Can I just interrupt again? Sorry, I, I'm fascinated by this. But they were, they are very Russian. I mean, 50%, well, most of the Crimea and the eastern side are Russian-speaking, and mm. a huge number of um, people in Ukraine are Russian-speaking. Mm. So Particularly in they, East Ukraine. Yeah, particularly in the East, but also in, in Ukraine now, where we're the, the main Ukraine. So they've, it's a weird thing because don't they themselves think, sort of like half of them are the, are the West and half of them are the East. So they must, are Rush, I Russian must admit, very much in the heart. When, when I spoke about this book in Australia and someone asked me about what do you think will happen in the future, my vision, admittedly this was in 1995, so take it mm. very much with an ocean load, a boatload of salt, was I th this country is heading towards partition, mm. that the eastern part will finish up part of Russia and the western part will finish up with its warm water port in Odessa, will finish up a Western European country and the division will be down the, roughly down the middle. And it is fair and accurate to say if you look at all the MOD maps, the, the big attacks have all been on the what, west. What would you allege was the... Was the was the misbehaviour by, by US administration? What they did was they led Ukraine, and this is the Mearsheimer phrase, down a primrose path where if you're going to have Ukrainian neutrality but also preserve it as a liberal democracy, it has to be Finlandized. And we all know what Finland did 
during the Cold War. It armed itself to the teeth. It made itself so prickly and dangerous that if Russia invaded again, it would be the Winter War all over in 1939-40, where the Russians absolutely got their noses bloodied by the Finns. So you either had to do that and not have Ukraine in NATO, or you had to have them in NATO and just cop the rot from Russia, because... Going back years, Putin has been saying, red line, red line, red line is membership but they in NATO. Neither. But they did neither. Everything was done very badly and very sloppily. The worst offender, I'm afraid, was Obama, where he kept saying, oh, membership of NATO, membership of NATO. But, uh, can I just um, ask again, sorry, because, I mean, I'm reading so much, my head's actually in a spin, and I've even started reading Lenin, for God's sake. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm, I'm just, I've got to get my head round this. Um, but they didn't um, want originally to go into NATO, or into NATO. Is that right? And it's then, very difficult. But it was part of the agreement that they weren't allowed to... because they, That was the Minsk agreement, yes. Exactly. Yes. So um, my understanding was they didn't want to, in any case, to begin with. That was part of the Minsk agreement, in any case, that they couldn't come up to the border so close to Russia. But now they're asking to, but, of course, NATO is saying that they can't. So... Um, can you kind of like clear up that kind of like um, little well, muddle? Well, there, this, well, no, the muddle exists because you had successive US administrations from different parties making different decisions and saying different things where one possibility was Minsk, no, no membership of NATO, we just need to arm you. And that, that was put about by various people. Bush the lesser, I call it in my piece. But then you have Obama saying, oh, no, no, maybe NATO membership is an option. So in a sense, Ukraine was made a victim of our democracy, well, not our, because it's obviously we're the United Kingdom, but the US's democracy and governments changing colour mm. and then coming up with different policies towards this third this But third what about country? the Minsk Agreement? Because that you can't just tear it up. That was actually something to really kind of protect everyone. So Well, the, th the problem is everyone has torn all those early agreements up because Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons mm. and Russia guaranteed its territorial integrity, including, at that point, Crimea and Luhansk and Donetsk. So this is this is what I, tr I try to the the Law and Liberty piece, which which Neil has very kindly uh, retweeted, goes into some of this history and provides lots of links and tries to explain these backgrounds as clearly as I can. And that is where when people talk about Western culpability, particularly Mir Sharma, who is a very eminent. Uh, uh, international relations scholar, he has a point. There are areas where I, I, I disagree with some of his assessments, but he does have a point about if you're going to have a policy with third countries, with international relations, you need to have consistency and you need to stick to it. And that just didn't happen. Mm. Helen, it's brilliant stuff. I so wish we had twice, three times long <laughs> to talk to you, but the book that's, is great. Please pay attention to the book. And I will endeavour to make sure we continue this conversation at another time, maybe in another episode. But thank you so much, Helen. Brilliant stuff. Thanks, Neil. After the break, I'll find out why the sky turned red over parts of southern England this week. See you in a couple of minutes. Welcome back. I've got time for a couple of pieces of uh, uh, social media uh, that's come in. Uh, David via email says, uh, uh, we're not far behind Russia with online censorship. Um, Catherine and Andrew via email say, time and again on Saturdays you speak for us poor loners so that we don't feel alone when we hear you. And Mary via email says, spot on, I'll be going forward filled with optimism. That's good to hear. I'm delighted for you, Mary. Hang on in there and keep the faith. Folk in the south of England awoke this week uh, to find the sky turned red and their cars covered in red dust. Some even wondered on social media, where else, if it was caused by events in Ukraine. 
In fact, it was all a product of the weather, specifically, I think, a low-pressure system centred on Spain. Joining me now to discuss the phenomenon is Jim Dale, who's the Senior Meteorological Consultant at the British Weather Surf uh, Services. Hello there, Jim. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Neil. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. This is this is a, a this story rang bells for me. I, I'd be right in saying that, that this happens from time to time, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, it's one of those occasions. I'm I trying to trying to think what it is sort of um, is, is equivalent to, but it's one of those events. I, I would say every every couple of three years we get these these drafts of southerly air. The storm you're on about, by the way, is Storm Celia. That's the one that uh, the Spanish Met Office uh, named, and uh, it, it occurred. You're right in southern southern Spain, uh, Morocco, Gibraltar way, um, and it gave them a, a lot of rain. In actual fact, some floods and much needed rain because they've been in drought conditions. But on its eastern flank, um, southerly winds uh, drafted all the way up through through Spain, through France, across the Pyrenees, uh, turned the ski slopes um, a nice shade of brown brown or orange um so it wasn't just red uh and then eventually through france into into southern england and if you can see on the screen i've got a an example right in front of me there that i've taken off my own little table that's the this is this is a good shade of brown i, I should say but that's straight out of either either spain or the sahara so it's one or the other traveled all the way up and there we go Did did anywhere, you know, did, did places have it badly enough that it was causing any kind of, is it, was it a hazard, you know, for yeah. people with breathing difficulties? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, because we, we look upon these events as being, um, you could say, a, a light-hearted, you know, exercise. In other words, we all have a little laugh or a little bit of fun, a bit like snowfalling for the first time, um, only it's, it's sand. And, and yeah, in certain countries, I'm not saying this time around, um, but certain countries suffer this year in year out where you get sand into the atmosphere uh, not just sandstorms per se but the type of events that we're seeing and they can get into lungs bron uh, bronchial problems um all of these sort of things it, it's, it's kind of two sides of the coin if you like because the good side of it is, it is it these little sand sand storms sand bits and pieces do con contain a lot of chemicals potassium nitrogen um and so on and and these fertilize the ground so in one way there's a good side to it in another there's a bad side. And it's not just ourselves, because we all often see the Sahara, um, the sand from the Sahara get lifted up and pushed across the other side, across the Atlantic, on the trade winds, into the Amazon, which again feeds the nutrition. It's an actual, the nutrition, the chemicals that are involved will feed the forest and, and help them. Once the, once the dust is airborne, and I think I read yeah. figures that was like two kilometers up in, this, in the sky, what keeps it there? And then finally, what, makes it drop how does it how does the sky clear okay uh well the first thing to say is that is we, we're controlled by upper air winds we can talk about the winds all day we had a nice cold wind today across uh, much of the uk um up there is where the action actually happens so when these updrafts if you like that take the sand the dust upwards they actually stay up there they they, they circulate and they get moved by uh, upper air winds and those winds um find their way Mainly, mainly through the jet stream, in, from our own purposes, from our own, uh, from where we are, in, where we're located here in the UK. Um, but in this case, southerly winds ahead of the cold front, which moved across the country during during this event, coalesced. Now every raindrop has got to have a nuclei. 
the nuclei in this case was this, which is why the sky turned magnificent red and brown and orange and all of these lovely colors. Um, uh, wasn't the end of the uh, earth as we know it or the world as we know it, I think the record is, isn't it, the song? Um, but but nonetheless, it was uh, it was an event. And I think once that happens, once you get that coalition of, of um, of, of, the, of the, the water around the, the drop, it becomes heavy enough to then gravity to do its work and, and come down to earth. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why the cars and the streets and my table and other things all got a, a, little, uh, a little dose of the, of the brown stuff. I, I find it such a fascinating uh, reminder about what a, what a truly global phenomenon the weather oh, yeah. is. And what a small world is that we here in the UK can get dusted with sand from the Sahara. I find that, you know, what a timely reminder about how connected it all is. It actually actually shows just how much um, we've got no borders and barriers as far as the weather's concerned. Meteorology doesn't doesn't get into the sort of politics as far as as far as this is concerned so it'll it'll go through those those barriers much as we get say a siberian wind and and uh we we get the snow coming in and you know or the arctic or something of that nature and occasionally we get the, the winds from the tropics it's exactly the same so these weather systems they're immense they're absolutely immense and when we get an ex hurricane for example out of america in 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 early autumn or late summer same sort of thing it isn't that we're getting the hurricane but we're getting the aftermath so so yeah, we, we're interconnected, and we will remain in, interconnected. So what we do here is very important. Let's just say what happens down the road and down the other road. You know, Africa. What happens there? We're all we all have an interest in our own little bit piece of of land, if you like, our own country. Uh, but it's all interconnected. So what we do here matters greatly as much as what they do over there matters greatly to ourselves as well. Terrific stuff. Jim Dale, uh, Senior Meteorological Consultant for the British Weather Services. Thanks so much for bringing that that insight and that information for us. Lovely stuff. It's a break again. Uh, And after the break, we will meet this week's Great Britain, a 10-year-old boy who's taking part in a triathlon to raise money for the hospital that helped to save his life. Welcome back to Neil Oliver Live. Derbyshire 10-year-old Daniel Bradley was born with a rare condition that causes the bones in a baby's skull to fuse together far earlier than they should and left untreated it can lead to blindness and brain damage. Uh, Daniel was operated on when he was just a week old or so by specialists at Birmingham Children's Hospital. Now Daniel plans to say thank you to the life-saving team who helped him by completing a fundraising triathlon. Dan's here now along with big brother Jack, yeah. uh, who will be swimming, cycling and running alongside him. Hello. Hi. Uh, thanks. Uh, first, I'd just like to say thanks for having me on. Oh, and, what an honour to have you. Um, I also just want to say um, that I'm doing a three-mile run, a 500-metre swim and a six-mile bike ride, and I'm really uh, excited to do it. And... I know there's lots of people watching tonight. There's um, someone called Olivia who's um, donated and she's uh, giving me lots of support. And um, she's, I'm doing lives and she's commented on all of um, them. Um, so I want to say a big thank you to family and friends and people from school who are watching. Fantastic, Dan. Jack, I'm guessing that your brother is quite a live wire and quite sure of what he wants to do. Yeah. 
You've got a lot of energy, haven't you? Yeah, I like... Very sporty. Yeah, I like to play football. <laughs> yeah, big yeah. into football. Yeah. Well, he came to me with the idea, um, so I just sort of wanted to help in any way I could. So we made a little video, didn't we? And, yeah. And um, we've been posting it. Yeah. We've had a lot of support, thousands of views on it. And uh, Tell me a little bit, Dan, about what, what was happening with your head what was it what was what was your skull doing that m most other skulls don't always do it it was uh, fusing together but I, I can't really remember much about well, it at that baby. age yeah 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 and everyth everything so you had a big operation i saw the scary photograph yeah. the zigzag the zigzag scar is i mean yeah. it's, it's uh, you can see now quite yeah. a, it's it goes, quite, uh, from quite ear to ear quite yeah. something to see but that's it that's all done that's all the hospital stuff they were looking at look at that picture on there dan now that is yeah. quite a sore head, yeah. I would say. Quite the battle scar, isn't it? Yeah. Look at that, my goodness, that's amazing. But everything fixed, everything sorted. Yeah, you're really brave and the discharge uh, last year. Yeah. So you had, to, you had to go back every year to, to do like regular checkups. But they've discharged him now and he's all... Now, Dan, I should tell you, I, I, I do, I try and have a story a, a little bit like this every week. It's, it's not always about, uh, you know, operations or whatever, but what, what we try and do is uh, introduce the audience to people who are, have had something difficult happen and in spite of the difficulty have turned it into something good for other people. And we, we, call, we call the people who do this Great Britons and I think without a shadow of a doubt, you two are Great Britons and you especially. And so I think, I think it really helps people out there to hear a story like yours, because it reminds us all of what we're all capable of and the contribution we can make. So you said, thanks for having me, but I can't tell you how delighted I am to have you here with me. Uh, I, I think it's, I think you are quite the star. Yeah, like, some, uh, it's like, even though you have something like this um, done to you, where there's a possible chance of you dying, you can still, you know, play football like I do. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah. And are you, uh, were you uh, interested in these sports anyway? You know, the, a triathlon is obviously running, swimming, cycling. W yeah. Were you into these pursuits anyway? I, I do like doing lots of sports, but it was, I was watching the Olympics and um, I just got the idea from there and I, and I really liked it and I thought, what could I do it for? And, and then I thought of this because, you know, they saved my life and that. I'll maybe ask you that. Where is the, where, where will the, what kind of uh, amount of money are we talking about, hopefully raising, um, where will it go? So we set a goal of a thousand pounds, didn't we? Yeah. And we smashed that in the first 24 hours with support from like friends and family. And um, since we've, reached just over £3,000. Yeah. Wow. So we tripled our goal. So that'll go to the hospital to put towards, you know, medical equipment, things like that. And I think a lot of, quite a bit of it has come from um, a TikToker who used yeah. to go to school with you. Um, yeah, she, she helped us by, she posted a TikTok that's had over 80,000 views, I think, hasn't it now? Yeah. So, um, and I think as well, some of the money is for um, the, the, the charity that, that provides accommodation and support for yeah. families of, of, of people who are going through big operations. Yeah, so it's Ronald McDonald House Charities. So um, McDonald's, I think, owns the, the charity. Mm -hmm. so they provide free accommodation to families who can't afford to be paying for hotels for weeks at a time. Yes. You know, mostly for, for terminal children. 
which, you know, there were a lot of those young children on your ward, wasn't there? Yeah, I think, didn't some of them get a bit more of an illness than me? What was it? Yeah, the things like tumours and, yeah. yeah, it was, you were the lucky one really, weren't you? Yeah, but, I think they were both bes bes beside me, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're really lucky to have been looked after by all these amazing people. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we can raise some money to, to give back to them. If people watching would like to boost the the fund, yeah. uh, is, there a, is there a way, is there an easy way for yeah, people so to get in touch with you or to contribute? Yeah, so we've got a GoFundMe page, haven't we? It's yeah. called Daniel's Triathlon for Craniosynostosis, which... Well is, done, I was avoiding yeah, that word. I was worried about that one. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's all over Facebook and, and things like that. So just share and donate if they can. Um, anything to do, really. Now that you've uh, got yourself into the world of triathlon and these kind of... Do you, uh, any further? You know, once, Obviously, you've still got to do this one. When's the date of the event? Uh, 24th of April. And it it's is. all in one day? Uh, yeah. I mean, because we're doing the swimming and the running in two different pl yeah. uh, places. I mean, the running and the biking are... Um, the same place, but the swimming is um, in a different in a different place. And do you think? Uh, do you feel now that you'll? It's going to be something that you'll continue to do. Are you? Are you um, going to become a, a a triathlete, or are you going to be a, a, a fundraiser going on from this? I, yeah, I think we'll definitely do an, another one because I've enjoyed training and that, and uh, um, um, it's and, and it's been fun. So. Um, I, I think I'll definitely do another one. I think he's got his headset on look, football. If you look at the if you look at the monitor there, Dan, you can see. Look at, yeah, there you go. There's the whole set going, running, cycling, <laughs> swimming. Yeah, I've been working really hard, haven't you? Yeah. Pretty what, much every day. What is your uh, what's your favourite of the three? What would you rather do? Mm, I don't know. I like it all really. Um, probably the swimming. Probably because mm -hmm. um, you know it it it, can, it keeps you fit and uh, I, and I really like being in the water. So, what was it like for you, uh, Jack? You know when you you know being being aware of all this happening, you know to um, Daniel. And as you say, you know you you were encountering other babies and, and youngsters in, in even more perilous yeah, situations. Um, I mean, I was nine when it happened, so. It was upsetting, I think, obviously, mm -hmm. because it changed his whole appearance. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was hard, but I think we're just really lucky that it was all fixable. And like I said, the, the support and care from the hospital was great. I mean, they even said, you know, as he gets older, because how it worked is they, they broke his skull into pieces. They moved his um, forehead to the top of his head and the top to the front. Um, which has sort of taken away his like, eyebrow bones. So they've even said um, when he's older, if he wants them, oh, he gets fillers. On look the, at you, Dan. On the <laughs> NHS. And you say you don't remember. I'm not, the, I'm not the remotely surprised that you yeah. don't remember that. Look at you. No. Just a wee toot. The, the thing that's funny is, I mean, hours after that photo was taken, he was up running up and down the ward, being really? followed round by our dad with, a, with an IV. Oh, <laughs> he wow. never stopped. Never stop running, do you? Right, gosh. So you were able to. You were able. Well, you won't remember, but able to be <laughs> up and about just right away. Yeah, I think I could um, start kicking a ball uh, as soon as I could start walking, and that <laughs> yeah. was only after ten months, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe it was a maybe it was a sign. Yeah. And uh, I think I've got a feeling that you'll go on and do a lot more than this. You know, I think listening to you and listening to the kind of determined 
chap you are. I, I think this is only the start of something for you. Yeah, thanks. You can do whatever you put your mind to, I think, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. You want to play for Derby County, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> they put my video on. They did. They showed it at the stadium uh, right. during a match. Ah, so, so you're, a, you're a football fan and that's your team, is it? Yeah. <laughs> you go every Saturday? Mm, we go, we get, do we go sometimes? Well, you normally have your own matches on a Saturday, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're not that big into football, are you? Not really, no, but I do, I do come and see you sometimes. Yeah, don't I? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I say, honestly, I, could, I, I, I can't get enough of meeting people like you and you, Jack. I think it's inspirational because, you know, we live in, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, I'm sure you've noticed. Yeah. News. yeah. And a lot of it makes people feel a bit down in the dumps. And then guys like you come on and you tell a story like yours and it makes everybody see the world in a slightly different way, in a slightly more optimistic way. So as I say, we call folk like you Great Britons. So yeah. I'm going to shake your hand because <laughs> I'm delighted that you've come along and I wish all the very best with your, Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> with your endeavour next month and I'm sure it will be a complete success. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks okay. for like having us on and uh, talking to us. It's and... absolutely uh, our honour. You've made my night. Thank you. Thanks. Welcome back. Now, the free online encyclopedia, Wikipedia, I'm sure everyone has dipped into it from time to time, was established in 2001 and it runs to millions of articles. It's often described as the largest and most read reference work in history. But now, according to one of the site's co-founders, Wikipedia can no longer be trusted as a source of unbiased information. Larry Sanger says the site has betrayed its original mission by deliberately presenting biased establishment views. And he joins me now. Hello, Larry. Thank you for making time for us this evening. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. No, it's good. It's such a fascinating topic. Uh, if you could take us back to the beginning, uh, what was the, the original idea, the, the inspiration, the seed that, that grew into Wikipedia? Right. Well, without getting into all of the details, there are a lot of them. Um, the vision was... And this is something that Jimmy Wales and I shared very well, um, was to give people a free access to the sum total of human knowledge. And that was defined essentially as, as uh, not uh, what had been proven beyond the uh, shadow of a doubt, but, but uh, the widest range of views, neutrally expressed. So neutrality was actually baked into the concept from the beginning. And uh, obviously, we, th we thought that this would be a great help to students and uneducated people around the world. And well, people have told me that actually over the years, uh, but unfortunately, it, it has changed quite a bit since the early days. Now, it's, it's been up and running for 20 years or, or so. Uh, when along that long line do you think it ceased to be a trustworthy resource and why? Well, let, let's put it this way. There are topics on which even today, perhaps, Wikipedia is reasonably trustworthy when it comes to um, the highly technical articles in, in uh, math and hard science and computer science. Um, 
but uh, on in, in topics in the humanities and social sciences uh, where bias was possible, I started observing a definite drift away from the ideals of the original neutrality of Wikipedia, I would say beginning around 2005. And it really, it was a quite a gradual process. And um, it, it became, I remember comparing um, Wikipedia to the BBC, if I'm not mistaken, back in like 2010 or 2012 or so. So it was, it was about like that then. Then, in the last five years, basically since 2015, 2016, especially after Trump and Brexit, um, the, uh, or the radicals really have taken over. At least, the, I would say the establishment left has taken over. It's difficult to find any views on Wikipedia that are not expressed with great contempt. Um, if they aren't uh, establishment left views. So, and, and a lot of, no, go ahead. What would you cite as say some of the most egregious examples, you know, if, if there were, you know, I don't know, a, 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 a top 10 that you, in your opinion, would, would uh, distrust what, what might some of those be? Um, I wrote a couple of blog posts in the last couple of years, and it really is hard to um, give you timely examples because they, it, it, the website does change quite a bit. But um, I'll give you a few that I can recall. I can't say if it's been changed since. Um, one of them certainly is um, there, there was very little information to be found uh, about Hunter Biden's laptop. So um, I don't know how familiar um, you know you you Brits and Scots are about well, you know well, that clearly clearly that it was laptop. it was a it was a story it was a story that was reported in the I think in the New York Times it was then it was it was dismissed as being part of uh, you know it was it was dismissed as propaganda and more, most recently it has been acknowledged that it was that the, the allegations being made about the content of emails was correct. Exactly. Well, it was actually first reported in the New York Post, which York is the competitor of the Times, right? And then it's the Times that recently um, uh, essentially backtracked and, 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 and it was buried in a story. Um, and it's, it's amazing. And of course, reflecting, um, as it does, the establishment view on on most everything, Wikipedia had um, nothing but contempt to say about these these uh, ridiculous conspiracy theories. That's that's what they were considered to be. Um, but it turns out that it was true. Um, there's a, a lot of other examples that can be given. Um, there is an article uh, about Jesus that um, it expressed some doubt about whether uh, whether in the original um, uh, apostles called Jesus, Jesus Christ. And I said that um, it, it, there is, uh, it ba basically cast dispersions on, on the whole idea of the historicity of Jesus. Now, of course, that's the normal um, uh, academic point of view on that, that subject. Um, but it's not a neutral point of view. 
right? At least that point of view should be attributed to the people who hold it. So that's that's my complaint, and that you never would have seen something like that 15 years ago. Larry, I have, I have guests with me in the studio, and I'd like to open up the open up the discussion uh, with them. Uh, I was watching you uh, yeah. paying rapt attention to that, Tom. Um, is Wikipedia, first of all, a resource that you've relied on over the years? I, I'm just so um, enamoured, Joe, to see uh, uh, Larry, and indeed, you know, his uh, his co-founder. What they, I think, you know, delivered to the world was, frankly, knowledge and information that has been actually the preserve of the elite. You know, I mean, if you grew up in a household, and I didn't grow up in one of these households, with the uh, Britannica Encyclopedia, and I remember going into some households where they were very proud That's of displayed me. all across the world, <laughs> then, you know, you had access to information, <clears throat> to uh, history. Yeah. and uh, But what um, Wikipedia delivers is it's all at a touch of the... Of, of a button. But that said, what I have noticed as the years have gone by is what I think started off as being a resource that was about bottom-up editorial control, what I think has been called also the wisdom of the crowd. So there was no one editor. It was about a number of different editors and writers mm. coming in. Open source. To moderate. Yeah, open source. And I think that's the point about neutrality. But now, you know, when I go to Wikipedia, and it the point about the establishment takeover. So, for example, any profile of a leading public figure now, it reads like a sort of sanitised CV that you're actually accessing. It's very hard to get a kind of rounded view of that individual in terms of their public life. Why is that? What's happening with that sort of process that's ensuring that that's well, sanitised? Well, perhaps, Larry, you could you could uh, answer that question. You know, what has have the processes of creating the content and monitoring and editing the content changed during the during the twenty years? Yeah, I think so. In in the uh, early years, um, especially the first five years, people really didn't care that much about what was said about them on Wikipedia. But that, uh, as it became clear over the years that people were um, paying attention to uh, and actually forming their opinions about people based on what was contained in their Wikipedia articles, they, um, I think, PR firms and um, internal uh, marketing of, of uh, not just politicians, but uh, corporate heads and corporations and, and all kinds of things um, started playing the game. And it the game in some ways hasn't really changed. You just have to be able to play it very well. And so Wikipedia is like a battleground in uh, information Warfare, and there are people who who uh, spend a lot of money. No doubt they bribe. I can't prove this. I can't prove this, but I, I fully believe it to be true. I'm sure that there are people with a lot of money who bribe the people on Wikipedia who happen to have the most pull in the system to just make sure that the articles uh, read as they're supposed to. And I've talked to some some uh, Wiki PR corporations, a couple of them, um, who have said off the record pretty much this. And just beyond that, you can, in, in the early days, again, when people were less sophisticated about Wikipedia, you could see that uh, some of the edits came from Langley, Virginia, um, in other words, CIA headquarters, and, uh, and they were editing articles about the CIA and topics of interest to the CIA. Obviously, I mean, so, Larry, it's beholden. It's beholden upon me to say that you know we haven't we we haven't been able to obtain c comment from uh, from Wikipedia, uh, and 
you know, you've you've got obviously you've got strong reasons for saying the things that you're saying, but I I'm not able to offer a, a response from or on behalf of Wikipedia, and I'm, I'm sure they would have a, a a different a different take on events. I, I wonder though. Would would you say that what you what you feel is happening around Wikipedia is it is it part of a, a wider problem, or, or a wider uh, reality about the online world? I I said in my opening remarks tonight that I that I felt that what had been originally pitched as something that no one owned and no one controlled, uh, in the fullness of time, it's apparent that someone does own it and someone does control it, and so uh, uh, as well as Wikipedia, is there something else calcifying and hardening and in what was supposed to be an eternally fluid world of, of online? <laughs> I like your question, and um, absolutely. Um, the problem that, that, uh, that I see with Wikipedia, uh, that it has in common with the problems with big tech is uh, information control, basically. And there's two aspects of that. There is um, control of speech, and there's control over our personal information. Um, the latter is not really so much of a problem on Wikipedia, um, except to the extent that Wikipedia articles do sometimes libel people and there's no recourse. But that's actually a different problem from problems of privacy. Um, and it's only a problem for people who are important enough to um, have Wikipedia articles. No, the, the problem, and it began uh, basically as Wikipedia was rising in the public eye around 20, uh, 2005 to 2010, was the concentration of power in the hands of a few giant uh, Silicon Valley corporations. You know, so sometimes they're called the FANG um, corporations, like uh, Facebook, Amazon, and and um, uh, Google and Apple and, and so forth. Um, the The problem is that they they basically, in order to interact with their information, you have to create an account on their websites, and then they own all of the information that you contribute to them, or at least they co-own it. You don't have complete control, and it's hard to export it in a way where you can do the same sorts of things off of their networks. So I can export all of my tweets from Twitter, okay, but what I can't do is maintain the same sort of conversations that I had with the, the, uh, my followers on Twitter. So what there really needs to exist, which don't yet, you know, the, the internet used to be built on decentralized networks where there wasn't, uh, no oligarchy um, in control of everything. Uh, there were literally thousands or millions of different servers that were connected together. And there was a, a, it was a great flowering of freedom. Um, that's basically how it worked in the 1980s, 90s, and the early 2000s. And then it started getting locked down. So what we need to do is to go back to decentralized networks where people own their own domains, they own their own data, they, um, they own their own social media feeds, they <clears throat> and they publish their data according to uh, common shared standards. So instead of everything being filtered 
through the uh, Twitter network. It's released to the whole world under a common social media standard that anybody could build apps from and make use of. So that's, that's one thing that, that um, my new organization, the Knowledge Standards Foundation, is working on. We, we want to actually transform RSS, the blogging standard, into a social media standard. And we also want to create a, a, a new decentralized network of all of the encyclopedias, which is much bigger and more powerful, ultimately, than Wikipedia on its own. Larry Sanger, a co-founder there of Wikipedia, you, you've, you've raised a subject that is you know, what a talking point yeah. uh, in relation to a resource that I know many people uh, you know, take for granted as a, as a trusted source of information and, that, and that, you've, uh, that you've invited us to think about it uh, in a different way and maybe ask some pertinent questions and also about the, you know, what I would definitely say is the necessity is that decentralisation of, of the internet. Thank you so much for uh, drawing our attention to that subject this evening and it's a conversation that I will hope to pick up with you at another time. Thank you, Larry Sanger. Now, after the break, I'll be talking to one of Britain's leading farmers about the problems facing his industry and how the problems they are facing could affect us all. Welcome back to Neil Oliver Live. Last week, we had an in-depth discussion on the cost of living crisis that's affecting millions of people across the UK. Our West Midlands reporter, Balvinder Sidhu, has been to see one single mother who says she could be evicted as she struggles to cope with rising energy and food bills. Notifications of unpaid bills keep popping up on Christine Borton's phone. She says she had to stop working in November and since then her financial struggles have escalated. Where I get my gas and electric from, I'm in lots of ways with them as well. And they even now um, send me a message, text message that they will be taking action. If I'm less in the house, I'm happy so that I don't have to turn on the gas and the electric. Christine lives with her two children in a private rented house and has been waiting in four years for a council house. Recently, one was offered, but she's been told unless she clears her rent arrears, she'll lose the house. Yes, I can be evicted because um, if I happens to hold too much rent in a rent arrears, then my, my landlord will more likely want to give me notice. I cannot afford this rent. It's killing me. You know, I, I, I was so crying last night and I don't want my little one because he does worry. He worried a lot about these things and he's only nine. To make ends meet, Christine relies on the local food bank. This food bank supports around 120 people a week and volunteers say that figure is expected to go up. People that have struggled um, as to whether to feed the families or heat or heat the, heat the home, they are going to find it even more difficult. And I'll, I don't like to think it, but I believe that there's going to be uh, quite a few families that will be going without food. And as a food bank, we can only do so much. Christine says she's desperate to return to work, but a delay in her visa means she's unable to work or claim benefits. Overall, my bill comes to at least £1,300 to, for my bills. 
at the moment. So I'm only getting 212 pounds a month at the moment. But it's not fair for your children to see you going through this because the worst thing about it is that it's affect them as well. Precious time with her son. Small <laughs> moments to distract from reality. Balvin de Sidhu for GB News. Goodness me. I think the, the, the struggle uh, for so many people is like, it's like rising floodwater that's going to reach more and more people and more and more homes. Uh, the current cost of living crisis is unprecedented in many ways. Global supply chains have been under pressure. More and more people are talking about the need to reclaim our independence in that respect, to, to take advantage of domestic gas, oil and coal, uh, and even more fundamentally, I suppose, to be able to feed ourselves with, with produce from here in these islands. Tom Sewell is an arable farmer in Kent. Uh, he is the Soil Farmer of the Year, having won the award in 2021. Uh, he's passionate about farming and he, he joins me now. Hello there. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, Neil. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Now, Tom, are today's problems caused by what's happening in uh, Europe, in Ukraine, or is it a longer story? Does it, does it go back further? I think it does go back a little, th little further, but obviously the situation in Ukraine and Russia has been one of those large aspects which has exacerbated the problem. And I think we saw a rise in fertiliser and fuel prices before um, Putin invaded Ukraine. But since then, the world has just gone into an even more crazy place with fertiliser now at four times the price it was um, just over a year ago. In addition to that, can you, can you list or describe other real-time impacts that are being experienced by farmers like you? Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to come in here and have everyone get the violins out and say, poor old farmers, because actually this year we're OK. You know, we are selling grain now with, it, with inputs that we purchased a year ago um, at lower prices, and the grain price has been inflated because of the situation, particularly in Ukraine and some other weather issues around the world. But really, it's, it's the stock farmers, particularly the pig farmers, that are really struggling at the moment because obviously they feed grains and the price of grain has gone up. And obviously, we know there's the issue with the butchers in the pig issue as well. So they've got a double whammy with higher feed costs and the inability to get their pigs um, slaughtered cost effectively. So there's many pig farmers losing huge amounts of money week on week at the moment. Um, so that's just another big aspect of it is the knock-on costs to other associated industries. When will we here in these islands feel the, the impact of you know, what's happening in, in Russia and Ukraine? Because obviously they are together major, major producers of, of wheat for, for the world. You know how how reliant are we on that on those imports in comparison to what's grown domestically? Absolutely. I mean, they call Ukraine the breadbasket of Europe, and um, Ukraine and Russia combined is somewhere between thirty-five and forty percent of the world's wheat exports. Um, now, UK do import a little bit of grain um, sometimes, but it's really the North African countries 
which rely on a huge amount of of that grain coming out of um, Russia and Ukraine down into into their areas. Um, so they're going to feel the pinch, particularly in areas where they can't can't grow the cereal crops, maize, and um, things like sunflowers. So I was reading some information recently on Ukraine. They are due to plant their sunflowers and maize in the next few weeks. If that doesn't happen, we're talking about millions, 40, 40 million tonnes um, of maize coming out of Ukraine, which if it's not planted in the next few weeks, you can't just go back and plant it in June or July. It needs planting in the window, in the spring window. And actually, we're not going to see the real knock-on effects until the harvest that should have been planted in the next few weeks then doesn't happen um, later in the year. And it's the same for us. You know, we're looking at uh, vastly inflated fertilizer and diesel and labor bills and we'll, we will question planting wheat in in this coming autumn due to just the hugely inflated inflated price of those input costs which when we start to do the figures unless we are guaranteed an even, a very very high wheat price we're obviously taking all that risk for a crop we may not sell for 18 months after we plant it. When you say the prices of those commodities upon which you depend are going up, by, by what kind of scale? Are you, are you talking about prices doubling? Well, if with fertiliser, we're talking four times the amount. So we paid uh, just under £250 for fertiliser a year ago to grow the crops that we are now selling. Um, at the moment, it's £1,000 a tonne. So I've got two tanks in my farmyard that each hold 50 cubic metres, which is 50,000 litres of fertiliser. So 100 cubic metres, they will now cost me hundred thousand pounds just to fill those two tanks with fertilizer whereas a year ago we're talking twenty five thousand pounds so straight away we're talking about an extra seventy five thousand pounds of extra cash flow which i've got to fork out in advance i then apply it to a crop which i'll grow i may not sell that harvested crop for another year after i've harvested it so the cash flow implications for a lot of farmers are going to be really quite severe i know there are some significant sized potato producers in this country who have already looked forward at the input costs now to plant potatoes this spring and have decided they're going to pull out of huge areas because the producers they sell to are saying, well, we're not going to raise the price we pay you. And so they've just done a very, very sharp um, figures analysis on that and said, well, we can't make a margin, we're just pulling out. So that is, again, these potatoes that are not going to come through to the harvest later in the year. And you know we may see some shortages later in the year on the supermarket shelves. Are we are we victims of uh, of having gone a long way down a path from which there is no return? You know, we we hear all the time about global supply chains and the fact that we're all interconnected and that we're dependent upon the security of supply of this, that, and the next thing from from wherever in the world. You know, was was this something that was avoidable? You know, would would farmers in this country have advocated doing? something differently so that we weren't so exposed to, to events in the way that we are at the moment? I think quite possibly. I think this obviously the issue in Ukraine has just blown everything out of the water. And I know there are people in government that say, well, we don't really need farmers. We can have, you know, flower meadows and rewilding and just import the food. Well, that's all very well when the food's there to import. But actually now we're looking at situations where even in areas away from Ukraine and Russia that people are, n are choosing not to plant. So we're hearing in North, North America that they're not going to plant as much maize as normal. We're hearing in the UK people aren't planting potatoes. And if other countries that aren't in a war-torn war area are 
choosing to pull out just because of the economics, is the food going to be there to import? You know, perhaps it is for the rich countries, but for the poor countries, then we could see some really serious, serious issues. And, you know, I was with some friends this week and the idea of a three pound chicken at Morrison's is going to be a seven pound chicken. And it's actually going to affect the poorest um, really quite significantly, I think. Uh, Tom Sewell, uh, farmer in Kent, thank you so much for your time this evening. Uh, it's troubling stuff that you have to report. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted to say it's a reminder that as you sow, so shall you reap. That is the, that's the biblical message, isn't it? And we're now, um, you know, we're now, we're now reaping what we have sown over the long term. But thanks for your time this evening, Tom. Uh, Tom, you're in the studio. It's salutary stuff, isn't it? When you hear, um, when you're reminded of, of the extent to which we've made ourselves dependent, and we, now, and now certain things are. Yeah. Letting us down, potentially. Yeah. I mean, what's uh, coming back to bite us is 40 years of globalisation, which, again, you know, looking at glass half full uh, has brought many benefits to the world. Um, but equally, if you can't supply uh, you know, your energy security, your food security, if you can't bring goods in that keep a lid on uh, inflation, then that has a real world effect on people, as you saw from your earlier package, a woman literally worried whether or not she can pay her energy bills. And, and I have to say, tens of thousands of people are in that position. When the price cap comes off in uh, April and is recalculated, it'll be recalculated again in October. And it, you know, there's only three choices really open to government here. It can either tax us less and put more money into the pockets of individuals. And we, are, we, we, we do have tax rates now at the highest level in peacetime history. Uh, you know, 26% of a household energy bill has got green levies and other taxes that are contained within it. So mm -hmm. there are, you know, political choices to be made. Of course, you can ask companies or employers voluntarily can choose to pay more. But again, if you're not getting the uplift in people's productivity, they're not producing more for the extra pay, then again, inflation takes mm -hmm. off. And we're not careful. We're going to be back to the 1970s with a sort of stagflation uh, scenario where both prices are going up and then eventually unemployment goes up with it as well and that's when you get a real economic and political crisis. Well, then you this... start getting into the depression, don't you? Yeah. Actually, not yeah. just a recession but a depression. A depression, absolutely. Ingrid, this is the first time I can remember in a long time that we're, we're all talking about the price of energy now. Mm. You know, you mm. see tens of thousands of people affected. It feels as though what's mm. coming is going to affect everyone. Mm. You know, that there will hardly be there will be very few or a, or a very thin section of society that is somehow mm. above and insulated from yeah, this. I think absolutely. everyone's going to get the hit. And mm. just look, Neil, at how mealy-mouthed actually um, Rishi Sunak's response has been so far to the energy crisis. He's talked about people having a loan paid back through their energy bills of £200 over the next two years. Which I is mean, just, just put that in contrast. I, mean, I you know, obviously don't want to go down the rabbit hole of COVID. You've talked a, a lot about uh, that issue on this show. But I, you know, I have to say, I have myself sometimes scratching my head thinking, did we borrow 300 billion pounds as a nation for the wrong crisis? You know, the billions that are spent on furlough, the billions that have mm -hmm. gone into business to prop up and the economy, so whilst we well. were locking uh, you know, large parts of uh, society down. Now we have a real crisis of cost of living crisis. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about putting 200 pounds together as a little giveaway. And mm. a, a, lot of us, a lot of us were saying for a long time that this was inevitable. We didn't mm. specify war in Ukraine and we didn't, we, didn't, you know, we didn't specify exactly what was going to happen, but it was aired by many people 
in many different places that the the lockdown measures and the money being spent mm. on a lot of it would would come uh, back to bite us. Yeah. Now there's no money left, is there? There's no. no money in the tank to the magic money. The magic money tree has gone. has been has taken yeah. a dreadful mm. battering. Mm. Well, they didn't check it because it was so abused. People cheated it in any case. I mean, putting up the NH the NHI that is a ridiculous um, thing to do as well because again, but it, it ends up with the situation people won't be able to afford to do it, and then employees mm. as well and employers. You know, you get that sort of thing where it's not economical for somebody to work or to be employed. But you know the. Um, I find, honestly, I look at this sort of like as a whole. So pre the Ukrainian invasion, the invasion of Ukraine, um, they were already, the electricity was going to go up, up, up and everything. And now it's going up even higher. And I'm thinking of it. This is really very clever. It's a dependency. Everywhere we look, there's a dependency. And eventually, we, the whole world will be dependent on the few. This is, this is mm. kind of all part of the, you know, the great reset then. So I'm thinking, here we have electric cars, all the manufacturing, this is where we're going to go, all that green, you know, climate change, whatever. I'm sorry, that, that does my head in. Um, and suddenly electricity has gone sky high. And here we are supposed to be buying electric cars. Well, that's, you know, wipe that out the window. With the food thing, we've been heading this way for so long. It really upsets me that we've lost our apple orchards, our cherry orchards, all the oast houses, they've become dwellings now. We were really setting ourselves up to become dependent. So much has been uh, tarmacked over now and houses built on it. Once it's gone, it's gone. Mm -hmm. Can't knock down those houses and turn them back into fields. But you're very right. I think we should try and go back. Like you were saying, we've got to go back to the, the little communities, sort of like forget all this... Um, you know, technology guiding us, whatever. I just Get worry that back we to basics. Yeah. Too many. I mean, the, pop the population well, that's has, the thing. has, has yeah. risen We can't steadily. feed the world. But, uh, yeah. oh, can I just say... On, oh, sorry, I just I get a little bit nervous when I hear people talk about going back because yeah. I just think, you know, no. society in prose is about going forward. No, but, but, go but you've, got to, you've, no, you've got to go back to basics because when you talk about imports, I'm thinking, and they're talking, and mm. Thomas Hall was talking about Africa, what happened before you had these great big cargo ships and everything importing grain into Africa, they lived off the land. What happened to us before bananas? We lived off whatever we grew. Why can't we go, that's what I'm saying, why can't we go back to something that is yeah. much more sustainable mm. and not be sort of like have the avocados I and hear, the oranges and the bananas I hear and Tom the grain? You don't, you don't want to be, the, the, perhaps, the, perhaps it's about the language. You know, it's not, for me, it's not about going backwards. Mm. I think you know, there, is, there is a way in which it is the way ahead. It is, it is actually yeah. the way ahead to be more Absolutely. independent, to be more in control of our own yeah. food and energy destinies. Yeah, because the fundamental flaw in globalisation, as far as I'm concerned, is that you know, the politicians have sold us this model of interconnectedness and interdependence. But of course, it's all based on the notion of, or A, the kindness of strangers, whilst they continue to be kind, and B, that you haven't got uh, psychopaths like... Uh, President Putin, who are prepared to literally risk World War Three. No, or Biden. Sorry, oh, I'm going to throw well, in well, there. Biden. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to get into. <laughs> going to have to get into a break here, and after that, I'll speak to the woman who managed to gate crash London Fashion Week while wearing a bin bag. Back in a couple of minutes. Welcome back. NASA say they're headed back to the moon. 
After the Apollo missions of the 60s and 70s, now we can look forward to the adventures of Artemis with the return to the moon scheduled for 2025 or 26. Half a century ago now, Eugene Kernan, commander of Apollo 17, climbed back aboard the lunar module on December 19th, 1972 for the return to Earth. He was the last man on the moon and before leaving it behind forever, he said, we leave as we came and God willing, as we shall return with peace and hope for all mankind. Fine sentiments. Kernan had earlier scratched into the dust of the moon's surface the initials TDC of his daughter, Tracy, so that wherever she was in the world, she would always be able to look up and know that her initials were there. It's all the most epic and legendary stuff. Here to discuss the potential for a new chapter to be written into the story of the moon is space expert Andrew Lound. Hello again, Andrew. We've spoken before, but this is... Hello, how are you? Why, given the tech that, we've ha that we have now and have had uh, compared to what was available back then, has it taken so long to go back to the moon? Yeah, it's, it, yeah essentially a political will, really. I mean, Kennedy's... Um, goal putting man on the moon and returning him safely to, to the earth before 1970 was, was to challenge the soviet union uh, then uh, essentially as an industrial challenge really to go to the moon although quietly hoped they would actually go together um and that was it really. it was a political challenge we could have fought a war with the soviet union at the time and they're very very close and in fact <laughs> things are feeling it's almost been like the 1960s again now strangely enough uh, and really the political will with there's to do it without any long-term planned goals, which is why Richard uh, Richard Nixon, um, very sensibly, strangely enough, cancelled the Apollo program at the time to concentrate on Earth orbital stuff, because then you had a controlled, organised plan uh, rather than just racing out there. Um, so there was never a political will or a real need to do it in, in many ways. Technically, we weren't really there. And to be honest, they're doing it at all uh, when we did it. It was absolutely an amazing achievement. And the spin-off, technology that came down into our society as well was absolutely fantastic but now the technology has really reached its point and it's been pushed very heavily to a certain degree by the private sector but nasa itself and then yes this new system they're using the space launch system has been a plodded long plodding along sort of system and it's, it's partly based on the space shuttle system a great deal of it isn't reusable so i hate to criticize I really don't like criticising things, but it's almost as if even now we NASA and government organised is using old tech where we're going to see Musk is going to overtake them in a couple of years' time with their technology. But there hasn't been a political will. And the reason why there's a need now is because there is a, an economic need to go to the moon and to the asteroids. Now, when it comes to Artemis, it's a good name, I think, the twin, twin sister of Apollo. Um, there oh, yeah. presumably has to be a warm-up. They're not just going to go from this standing start to the moon. They, they must build to it, surely. Yes. Yes. I mean, what we're seeing here is it, it, the full the full stack of block one, because uh, there's going to be three blocks of spacecraft. And there, a block simply means a design phase. And this is block one. Block two will be a much taller piece of kit. And block three is going to be a cargo vessel. Um, and the idea of this one is to roll it out and do a dry test, and then a, what's called a wet test, which means they fuel it up and absolutely everything apart from lift off uh, to make sure everybody knows what they're doing. And then it's going to lift off uh, probably June, hopefully for May, likely to be June, and send a spacecraft uh, uh, around the moon, an unmanned spacecraft, uncrewed, 
go around the moon as a test flight. It will drop some uh, small satellites in the area as well, so it will actually do some scientific research. But that will be a test flight to see if all goes well, and they will bring it back, and that will test the re-entry systems, the launch systems, the orbit systems, the communication. And when they've evaluated that, then the, the test will be to send humans around the moon um, to see how that works. And now, hopefully, we're going to do that next year, maybe the year after. It's looking more like 2026 now as, as the time is slipping very badly. And there'll be these step-by-step -step tests. And you must complete all the tests. Everything must be perfect before you move to the next level. And that's pretty standard practice in, in spaceflight. You saw it with Mosk, for instance. You tried to get that vehicle and it failed, it crashed. So you do it again. And until you've got it perfect, do you move on to the next level? So that's what's happening with Artemis. So this one is the, the rollout, the ground test, if you like, and it'll be launched with no crew on board in June, hopefully, to go around the moon. And then in a couple of years' time, we may see the first Americans going back around the moon. Fantastic stuff. Andrew Lowne, space expert. We will catch up with you again as uh, the moon draws closer. But thanks for now. OK, last up. The world of haute couture and high fashion can be a very exclusive one. What to wear, who to wear, how to wear it. A young woman from Cheshire recently gained access to London Fashion Week, that twice yearly event showcasing the creative efforts of hundreds of designers to a global audience, wearing a black polythene bin bag. <laughs> I kid you not. Fashionista with a difference, Ellie Marie Whitby from Runcorn joins me now. Ellie. Hello. What were you, th what were you thinking? <laughs> what possesses a young woman to go to London Fashion Week in a in a bin bag, as I as I see you are wearing again now. Yeah, I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't have much style, so I thought I want to I want to try and get into one of these prestigious events and see if it's doable in a in just a bin bag from Tesco's. What was the What was the reaction? I mean, you, you rock up at the door, presumably, and uh, someone looks you up and down. What What was said or not said? Yeah, I definitely, I got a lot of uh, glares and a, a lot of strange looks, but I got my friend to like pretend to be a fake paparazzi. Um, so we kind of just like rallied all the other paparazzi who thought I must have been someone famous. And yeah, I did some interviews and uh, yeah, it worked. I'm, I'm assuming you didn't have any kind of ticket or accreditation or any legitimate <laughs> means of no. gaining access. You just did it, did it all in a blag. Yeah, yeah, they they had like these formal written invitations, um, and they didn't. The locations of where it was, the different catwalks were like hidden from the public. Uh, so it took a lot of phone calls uh, to try and figure out where one of the catwalks was going to be. And when we got there, we just thought we'll we'll try and make a scene. We'll try and get as many paparazzi rallied as possible. So when I walk up to the front, they just they just believe I belong, and uh, yeah, that worked. Did you have an objective for doing it? You know, was there any, you, you know, beyond seeing if you could do it, did you, did you do anything with the, I don't know, the footage or the, or the photographs? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of it is just, a lot of what I try and do on YouTube is like bring lighthearted stories and just make people laugh. And I think, I mean, that, that headline alone is just pretty funny, but to, to try and pull it off, I think it's just, Something to like entertain people and make people laugh. Well, you did that, Ellie. It's uh, it's a splendid adventure. I uh, I will watch with bated breath to see what it is that you attempt to do next. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining yeah. us. Yeah.
this evening. Fantastic stuff. Well done. What do you think? What do you think, Ingrid? What, oh, what, is, that, is, that the kind of, is that the kind of stunt that appeals to you? Or? Oh, do you know, I don't care. It just makes me smile. Everything is such doom and gloom at the moment. And go for it. I think she's just like a bright, young, it's so refreshing. Go for it. I really enjoyed it. It brought a smile to my face. Mine too. I mean, you've used up your Great Britain um, for the show today. Obviously, a wonderful story about the young lad there. But uh, she, in my book, is a Great Britain too. Because I think, you know, there's a there's a bigger metaphor there, isn't there, about turning up to London Fashion Week uh, in a bin liner when you think about all the concerns about uh, throwaway fashion, the conditions that often people in the Far East and other countries that are working in and the sort of, you know, people buying things for a fiver and then throwing it away after mm. only wearing it once. So... Good on her. She, I, she she put that right front and centre in their face. I, I agree completely. And I also mm. think it, it's, I find it strangely inspirational that when we're also, well, I'm so preoccupied with Ukraine and, mm. you know, and, and, and COVID and lockdown and all the rest of it, that Ellie's sitting in her house thinking I about know. how to get into yeah. 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 in I've yeah. got an idea. Thank God it wasn't one of those transparency ones. It's good to know that out there there are other people thinking about other things. Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. It's so refreshing. It's brought a smile to our faces yeah. and we all need a little bit of cheering up. It's mm. harmless fun. It's yeah. brilliant. Absolutely. Now, that's all from me on Neil Oliver Live. My thanks, as always, to my panel, lovely Ingrid Tarrant and lovely Tom Buick. Thank you for being with me. And also to the rest of my guests. Thanks for listening to Neil Oliver Live, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a nice comment. I'll see you next time.